Good morning and welcome to Paris Valley Community Church. I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning, and I am so excited about the announcement that we get to see each other in person next Sunday on Father's Day, 10 a.m. We're going to meet at Mercado Park in Paris. You can look, at, look it up, uh, Google it, and, and find the address. Come out there and enjoy Sunday service outside with us. That's going to be next Sunday morning on Father's Day. Bring, bring Dad, bring a Dad, just come out and fellowship with us. I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Old Testament book of Numbers. We are continuing in a sermon series that is called God's Original Prescription for Relationships. And we're focused on the Ten Commandments and now the last six of the Ten Commandments that are all focused on how we as people are to interact with each other. We're at the Sixth Commandment today, and there is no soft landing in the, first, or in the Sixth Commandment. God isn't wasting any breath. He is not going to sugarcoat this instruction at all. The Sixth Commandment reads like this. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 13 says, You must not murder. Now, on the surface, that sounds like an easy commandment to obey. As a matter of fact, I would highly doubt that anyone here, anyone in our congregation, has a habitual habit of breaking the sixth commandment. If by chance you struggle with this, I want to talk to you, and we're going to reassign you to a new seat at church. The King James Version actually says, Thou shalt not kill. It's a more broad meaning than the word murder. The original Hebrew, it does refer to murder, but it also refers to like a slayer or a killing or to cause death, even to kill accidentally. And even though we might not have a habitual habit of murdering or killing, we still want to dive deep into this command so that we can see what it is that God is trying to tell us. Why is this command so important? Why did God put this in the Ten Commandments? Well, he put it in the Ten Commandments because it was needed, and it is needed. So let's jump in and see what the Bible has to say. Open your Bibles. We're in the Old Testament book of Numbers. We are in chapter number 35 this morning in a message that I have titled, The Sanctity of Life. It's important to know that the Ten Commandments are not the only rules that God gave to the nation of Israel. The book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers all have more direction for the nation of Israel, and, and we get a chance to see more definition of the Sixth Commandment through other books that are in this list of, of rules. But it does lead us back to that question of why God would give this command in the first place. Why would God tell his people, thou shall not murder? It's because of this. It's point number one in your notes. If you're joining us for the first time, you'll see uh, sermon notes. They're on our website about halfway down. You can click on that and fill in the blanks as we go along. Point number one in your notes this morning is this. Life is sacred because all life is made in the image of God. All of God's creations, of all of God's creations... Man is his masterpiece. God didn't give this command to the mountains. He didn't give this command to ducks. 
He didn't give this command to the wind. He didn't give this command to elephants. God gave this command to man because man is God's masterpiece. We say the sanctity of life. Say, what is it? What what exactly is sanctity? Merriam-Webster would define sanctity as the quality or state of being holy or sacred. When you and I look at ourselves in the mirror, many of us probably don't look into the mirror and recognize ourselves as being holy or being sacred. Sometimes we have such a low self-esteem of ourselves that that we have a hard time even finding meaning in our own life or, or maybe a value in our own life. But I want you to know this, to call life sacred is not a determination of the one who lives, but rather it is a declaration of fact by the maker. There was a class of kindergartners, about 30 of them in a class one time, and they were all getting ready for a back-to-school night, and they were showing their artwork, and, and the week previously, all the kids had been making these clay structures. And they would take the clay that they made and, and it would be warmed up and, it, and it, would, it would be hardened into a shape that the child had made. And if you were to ask any of the children on back to school night, which one of these 30 sculptures meant the most to them, all of those kids are going to point to the one that they made. Because to them, that creation means the most because it's their sculpture, because they made it. They put their heart into it. Their work is special to them because they have a personal interest in that sculpture, because it is a personal masterpiece out of their own mind. And that's how God feels about you. That's how God feels about us. We're told many times in Scripture that we are made in the image of God. You are special because you have godly qualities built into you. And so does every other human life. Because everyone else is also made in the image of God. Every single one of us was handmade by God. Have you ever come across a product, maybe a piece of clothing or, or some sort of a product that you pick up at the store and you'll see that, that it has on its tag, it says either maybe handmade or it says hand-painted. What does that tell us about that product that we have purchased? What it tells us is that it's not made by a machine. It tells us that this product is unique. Because the creator of this product spent time working on it with their own hands. God, your creator, spent time working on you with his own hands. Think about that. We think that God spent time working on us with his own hands. Isn't it easy to realize that maybe God looks at us sometimes more precious as we look at us? Not only are we commanded not to murder, but we're commanded not to kill because all life is made in the image of God. I know this is going to hit home for some people. 
The Bible teaches that life starts at conception. We can go through the Bible and we can see this. And I would be, I would be willing to say and to stand up here that, and to say that God is pro-life. Now, I would also say that God is pro-choice. He has given us a choice. He has given us a command. He says, thou shalt not murder. He is indeed pro-choice, but God is in favor of the right choice. See, we all have a choice to choose life. Comes a time in America where the most dangerous place to be might not be in the inner cities, on the streets where gangs threaten lives and violence clashes in, in, in neighborhoods, and there's families who are mourning the loss of life because of gun violence. And it might not even be where the, where the, the most dangerous place to be it might not even be an, an angry prison that is that is constantly rioting and only the, the strongest inmates are going to survive because the only thing controlling this population is iron bars. No, in America, the most dangerous place might be in the womb of a mother who is more concerned about convenience than she is about obedience. I want to say this morning right away, if you are somebody who has been through this very, very difficult decision that you've made in the past, I want you to know that, that there is forgiveness and that there is a family here. Will our decision ever in any circumstance be the correct decision? No. But can it be forgiven? Yeah. It leads us to another important point, another important topic that is controversial in our world, but it wasn't controversial in the Old Testament. I'm going to take us to Genesis chapter 9. We're in verses 5 through 6. And uh, we're going to put these up on the screen here in just a second. Genesis 9 is the chapter that comes right after Noah and his family in the ark have landed. Okay, so they were in the boat with all the animals, and they were floating on the water, and God wiped out all of the population except for those who were on the boat, and now it comes to a standstill, and his, Noah's family starts to get off the boat. And what God does is the same thing he did with Adam and Eve, and the same thing that he's going to do later with Moses. He's going to say, okay, here are my list of rules. This is how we start. Adam and Eve, he gave the list. He, he says, do not eat of this fruit. And what happened? They ate of that fruit. God's going to give Noah and his family a list as things start over. Genesis chapter 9, verse number 5 reads like this. God says, And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. If, and anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. This rule, God states that human life is so important, that it's so sacred, that it's so precious, that the only way to pay restitution for causing the death of somebody else, the only way to pay that restitution is with a life. 
That's it. God doesn't give Noah's family, he doesn't give in this rule the opportunity to get off the hook with anything less than a life. You can't pay enough money to get off the hook. You can't do enough chores to get off the hook. You can't do enough community service to get off the hook. And in those days, you would not be sentenced to life in prison without parole. That was not an option. There was one penalty for murder, and it is a life. Why is that? Because murder is purposefully destroying something that God created. God says, Life is my masterpiece. You don't have permission to destroy it. I made it. I will determine when it ends, not you. Imagine if in that kindergarten class, one of the bullies steps into that back-to-school night and grabs a mallet and starts going around and smashing all of these clay structures that all of the kids have made, just goes throughout the entire class and starts destroying them. How do you think that little Billy is going to feel about somebody, this bully that just uh, came up and destroyed his masterpiece? I'd say that five-year-old might start to cry. Maybe he would become terribly sad. He might even want some restitution, right? He might be angry. He might want to take that mallet out and go over to the bully's uh, little figurine and smash that all to pieces. And see, that's exactly what God does. God tells his people to carry out this sentence of death on his behalf because his masterpiece was destroyed. And it's all because someone is destroying God's creation. And the only way to pay for that is with life. But not only does that show us how important life is to God, it should also show us how important life should be to us. Point number two in your notes this morning is this. The sixth commandment is more than a prohibition. It is also a protection. You say, Pastor, the sixth commandment says, Thou shall not kill. How is that supposed to protect me? What do you mean it's a protection? And on the surface, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because it's just saying, Thou shall not murder. But because it's telling us all the same thing, not only are you commanded not to murder others, but other people are commanded not to murder you. It is a protection as well. In order to fully understand this, we need to understand who it is that God is talking to. We're going to go back into the time period when God gives this, this rule. Moses and the Israelites, they had left Egypt where they had been slaves. Their people had been slaves for 400 years. And the Israelites are now, they, they, they've gone into the desert, and God says, you are my chosen people. Out of all the people on earth, you are my chosen people. The Egyptians weren't God's chosen people. The Canaanites weren't God's chosen people. The Israelites were God's chosen people. And that is the group of people who God is giving this rule to, the Israelites. You are my chosen 
people. God formed a covenant. A covenant is, is it's like a promise or a vow. God has a covenant with the nation of Israel. And they are now referred to as his covenant community. And God tells his covenant community, he says that they are to be priests. And their job is going to be to take the word, take God's message to all of the other nations. Eventually, in, in God's mind, his, his reasoning is he's going to have a covenant with this people, this group of people, and they're going to go and tell the world about him. Sound familiar? What God is saying, though, is within this community, life is a very unique gift. And only God can say yes or no to life. He is the only decision maker. We are not to be the decision maker of when life ends, even if it's our own. That's the rule that God is putting down to his covenant community. God has... He has kept the honor and he has kept the obligation for himself of when life starts and when life ends. And he has never given us the, the, the opportunity or the right to destroy his masterpiece. The members of his covenant community, the nation of Israel, they were protected from the threat of death at the hands of others within the community because everyone was to live by these rules. Everyone in the community was given the rule, thou shall not murder. God wants his people to recognize that life is sacred and there is trust within the community and within the bonds of the promise. See, if we're all living by God's rules and God's rules is his rule is thou shall not murder it comes with a protection the community is also responsible for the good of each other just as god cares for his people and if we are made in the image of god then we should be showing attributes and actions that are consistent with the image of god our attitudes towards each other should be consistent with the dignity and with the worth and with the protection that God provides us. God did not give us the permission or the opportunity to decide who it is that we are choosing to show dignity to, to show worth to, or to provide protection to. He didn't leave that choice up to us. If we're made in God's image, and we know that every single person is God's masterpiece, and every single person is made in the image of God, then as his children, to show his image, we have to recognize the dignity, the worth, and the protection of all of God's creation. Of all of the people that God has created, it is never up to us to determine the worth of an individual, but rather to be consistent in showing God's dignity to every single person. If he or she can leap in the womb, he or she has been created by God and deserves dignity, worth, and protection. 
If she can't play with her friends on the swings because she is confined to a wheelchair and she will be for the rest of her life, she has been created in the image of God and she deserves dignity, worth, and protection. Maybe he struggles from mental health difficulties and, and, and struggles to, to build connections and bonds with other people. But to us, he is created in the image of God and deserves dignity and worth and protection. If he is black, if he is white, if he is Asian, if he is Indian, if he is albino, if he is Eskimo or Chilean or Ecuadorian or North European or, or South African or Jamaican or Russian or German or left-handed or red-headed. If he's from Southern California or Northern New Hampshire, he has been created by God in God's image and he deserves dignity and worth and protection. Every person killed or every person murdered is a masterful art project that God has worked so hard on. That God spent so much time designing. That before this person was even conceived, God was working on this project. He knows every hair on everybody's head. Because he made every person by hand. Who are we to destroy somebody else's masterpiece? Who are we to destroy somebody else's work? Who are we to destroy God's work? Here's the third point in your notes this morning. There are biblical penalties for any taking of life. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 35. And we're going to see how this works when God gives specific definitions. And, and he, he shows us a difference between murder and manslaughter. In this chapter, God has given the Israelites what's called a city of refuge. And I want you to see in Numbers chapter 35... And we're going to start in the second half of verse number 10. God gave Moses, told Moses to give the nation of Israel these instructions. I'm going to put this up on the screen. When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, designate cities of refuge to which people can flee if they have killed someone accidentally. We're going to talk about that for a moment. Let's imagine that you and your buddy are out painting a house. And you're walking with paint buckets. You walk under the ladder. You're not supposed to, but you do. And you knock down that ladder, and your buddy falls down and dies. I know, it's a sad story. His family is going to want to avenge that death, and rightfully so. This was an accident. But this rule details to this people, to God's covenant community, it details a discipline for this. This rule says that there is a difference between an accidental death. And, 
And the rule says there are cities of refuge. These were literal cities uh, across across the area where all the Israelites lived, it would be as if in California, we have nine cities in California that you would go to, and these are cities of refuge. And, and you are protected here if you have killed somebody that you could run to this city as quickly as you can, and there's a court there. And if the court determines that this killing was, or was accidental, now you stay in the city and you are protected. You can't leave this city. If you leave this city, if you go outside the city walls, the family of the person you killed can come and kill you, and it's absolutely legal. But as long as you stay inside that city, you're safe. So what does that show us? It says, okay, so there was an accidental death, but there's still a penalty. In a way, it's kind of equivalent to life in prison in our culture. You have to leave your family and go live in another city. You have to leave your job. You have to leave your pets. You have to leave your livestock. You have to leave everything you know, go live in another city, and in that city are other people who you don't know, but who are also there because they accidentally killed somebody and they have to live here because this is the only place that they could be safe. In a way, you're kind of living with other prisoners. But I want you to see the differentiation here that God uses over the next few verses to show the difference between murder and manslaughter. We're in Numbers chapter 35, verse number 16. I'm going to read through verse 21. Actually, we're going to read verses 16 and 17. It says, but if somebody strikes and kills another person with a piece of iron, it is murder, and the murderer must be executed. Or if somebody with a stone in his hand strikes and kills another person, it is murder, and the murderer must be put to death. See, here, intent is key. If a suspect killed without intent, it's off to the city of refuge with you. And you are going to live in this city for the rest of your life inside these city walls. If you go outside the city, you can be killed. But if there was intent, execution. That's the rule that God gave to his people. Now, if you are in the city of refuge, there is one way you can get out. If the high priest dies... So as long as the high priest is alive, and high priests would be highly guarded, you have to stay in the city of refuge. But if the high priest dies, then you can go home without any further penalty. It would be like in our modern city, in our modern times. Let's say you were you are arrested, you were put in jail for, with, with a life sentence, and, but you're there until that judge dies of natural causes, whenever that may be, you might die first in the city of refuge. So after all that we have learned today about murder, killing, and premeditated murder, what does that mean to you and I as Christians? This is Old Testament stuff that we've been studying. We've talked about it throughout this sermon series, how Christians 
have to look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. That we see the words of Christ, and, and then we can see the Old Testament the way that he saw it and the way that he's teaching it. And it's important to understand Christ's position when it comes to where he is in the New Testament and how he regards the Old Testament. I want you to turn with me into the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, we need to remember that Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Now, the word fulfill does not mean I came to complete the law, that it's all done. The law refers to the law of Moses that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, that is referring to that. Jesus says, I didn't come to, I didn't finish it. I'm coming to fulfill it. Fulfill is, is a, um, it's an ongoing verb, okay? So he's not saying it's complete. But what Jesus says is that it's still very very important. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 21. Jesus says this, You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, here's Jesus saying, I say, if you are even angry with somebody, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if the if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Point number four in your notes this morning is this. Christians live under the command, not the suggestion, to control their anger. It's no secret that a small nugget of anger can lead to a full escalation of war. And it's going to happen. Somebody is going to wrong you. Expect it. Prepare for it. Something's going to happen. Some, someone's going to frustrate you. Somebody's going to make you mad. Somebody is going to entice anger. And Jesus compares this anger to murder. He, he's putting it in the same category when it comes to the judgment. And we would think, you know what, that's kind of extreme for Jesus to take something like murder and compare it against anger. In our culture, you know, we, we might say, is jaywalking the same thing as like armed robbery? Well, in this situation, it's not up for us to decide that. This is what Jesus says. If Jesus says it, and if the Bible is inerrant, if it is without errors, this is Jesus taking the Ten Commandments and saying, I'm expanding on them. This is the commandment. It still stands. I'm going to expand on this. And Jesus says, being angry, you're under the same judgment. What do we do sometimes when we get angry? What do we teach our kids to do when they get angry? Don't we take or we tell our kids to take a timeout? You ever heard of that? You ever send your kids to a timeout or you just send them to their room, right? Can you see a connection between a timeout for anger and a city of refuge? A timeout to go cool down before our anger erupts into something that comes with a massive judgment and a city of refuge. Often, we will separate kids from each other, send one of them to their rooms for two reasons. One, 
is discipline. The other is protection. It's to keep one safe because their brother just hit them in the head with a PS4 controller. It's discipline and protection. The PS4 controllers are kind of expensive too. So, I mean, there's, there's that. But see, according to Jesus, the expansion of the sixth commandment can actually be violated by the exploitation of another person by maybe indifference to human need. What if we know somebody is being exploited and we turn and we walk the other way? What if we don't show dignity or worth or protection? Then we are guilty. Every single person even that person who you can't stand is made by hand, by God, in his image. Here's the positive for you. You might be the person, and I might be the person, who somebody else says, I can't stand them. You know what? He's got a laugh, and it really annoys me. I really can't. I, we're just not on the same wavelength. I really don't get along with this person at all. That might be you. Somebody might be thinking about you and me this way. They might say, I can't stand that they follow such a restrictive faith. I don't get it. I don't get him. I don't understand the, the, his, his culture, and I don't want to understand. This protects you as well. Just like God has told us not to look at others in any other way other than recognizing their worth, he's also told others not to look at us that way. We can take it a step further and he's told you not to look at yourself that way. We're all under the same rules and direction. It's just that some people don't know it yet. Our jobs as Christians, you and I, is to recognize that we have been called as a nation of priests. It is our job to take the message of Jesus and tell the entire world. If everyone knew that there is a command against murder and killing and anger, if everyone knew that this is wrong and that manslaughter is punished and even anger is wrong and that putting down our neighbor is unbiblical, I think that this world would be a much better place. Amen? If we could recognize that leaving our brother or sister out in the cold without dignity and worth and protection. And if we can feel that guilt and we understand that, but we can recognize that we could redeem the situation by providing dignity and worth and protection to our brothers and sisters. Well, that's where community starts. That's where reaching out starts. 
That's where breaking down barriers starts. That's where crossing racial divides starts. Dignity, worth, and protection. That's where evangelizing the gospel starts. If everyone knew what Jesus said, and everyone followed our Lord's commands and His directions, can you imagine what kind of world we would live in? I don't know if we can imagine that. Because that world doesn't exist. At least in our realm. It does exist in a place called heaven where God lives. Heaven is a real place. And it's a place where we don't have to worry about murder, where we don't have to worry about getting our Play-Doh or our, our clay structure smashed. We don't have to worry about the abortion of innocent lives. We don't have to worry about running off to a city of refuge. We don't have to worry about gang violence or prison riots. Heaven is a true sanctuary city. It's a place where peace lives. It's a place where dignity and worth and protection live. If others are to know these commands, and if we ever expect or hope for other people to know Jesus, we must tell them. It's not up to anyone else. It's up to us. We must tell them. We continue to pray for those who don't know Jesus. And we continue to come alongside those who need strengthened by his name and by the, the family of 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 Christians and in the kingdom of, of heaven. And we continue to come alongside those and bring dignity and bring worth and bring protection to every single person because every single person is God's masterpiece made by his very hand. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for individually making every single one of us. For making us in your image. For giving us more worth than maybe we even give ourselves. Lord, I pray this morning that you will touch our hearts and remind us that there is not a single person in this world that was not made by you and that does not deserve dignity and worth and protection, Lord. I pray that everyone here, no matter who they are, will look at everyone there, no matter who they are, and recognize our brothers and sisters need us to provide dignity, worth, and protection that that's our job 
is to see every life the way that you see every life. Lord, this morning, we come to you with humble hearts, knowing that even a command like this, as powerful as it is, can be broken. That maybe we've broken it in the past, but Lord, we know that you are the God of forgiveness. Lord, touch our hearts so we can see others and everyone in our world as your artwork with your beauty. Lord, this is not for us to destroy, but it's for us to honor and respect and love and see the dignity and worth in because you made this. You made them. You made us. Lord, you made us different, but you made us with your qualities, with your image. And we thank you for that. Lord, as our church prepares to come back together, Lord, I pray that you will put on our hearts that we recognize that each one of us might have a different reaction to coming back together in person. Lord, I know that I know that some people are done with this. They're over this. They're ready for all the restrictions to be lifted. And, and they're ready to come together and hug and handshake. And Lord, we also know that there are people among us who are still scared and timid and worried. And are going to come next week wearing face masks and want sanitizer. And Lord, I pray that you will... Touch our hearts to recognize that every one of us deserves dignity, worth, and protection. And that our response is okay. Lord, for those who come next week with masks, Lord, bless them. And for those who come to church next week without Lord, bless them. Lord, be with us as we continue in our worship this morning. Lord, we're so excited to be able to see each other in person again. I ask that you walk forward and you bless those family members who we don't know yet. Bless our service. Bless your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.